Welcome to the Happy You Are Here podcast. In this show, we talk about tools, techniques, and ideas on how to live more fulfilling lives. This often focuses around mindfulness, and we have a great guest to talk about that subject in this episode. We have clinical social worker Margot Hellman, who deals with a lot of different types of therapeutic uh, models, but also you are very focused on mindfulness and how that applies to relationships. We're going to talk about that a little bit. We might get into that a little bit. We were talking before the show on how mindfulness relates to activism and how basically it relates to conflict. Um, and that's something that we're going to talk a lot about. So why don't you introduce yourself to the audience um, and a little bit about your practice? Okay, thanks, Craig. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, so as you said, my name is Margot Hellman. I'm a clinical social worker, and I work uh, with people coping with difficult relationships, with anxiety, with illness, and with loss. I actually started working with illness and loss and gained so much experience in working with people with all different kinds of problems because people will often come to therapy when they're coping with something in their lives like illness or loss mm -hmm. and they bring their whole selves you know so maybe they've got other things going on in their lives that it, they could have benefited from therapy before but they didn't do that which is obviously every person's choice right. uh, but when they come to therapy because of this huge thing that's going on then they bring in so many different things. And, uh, and difficult relationships are often part of coping with whatever we're coping with. Any endeavor in our lives, really, we're, we're almost, almost all of us are almost always involved with other people, right? Yes, yeah, and, at uh, some point. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, hopefully. So yes. uh, just being able to deal with difficult relationships is so key. And mindfulness is something that I've loved since I was very young, since the beginning of my adulthood. I was actually, a, I was studying to be a midwife in El Paso, Texas. Oh. And uh, yeah, I had my days off and my days on, and I was thinking about big things, life and death. And I started yeah. reading Steve, Stephen Levine, who's got some wonderful meditations and, um, and worked a lot with end of life. And that's, I think, I, when I look back, I think that was my introduction to mindfulness. And I've been practicing mindfulness for decades now. And then more recently, sitting in meditation uh, regularly. And I bring mindfulness a lot into my practice, not necessarily as a meditation, mm -hmm. but the skills of, of here and now and noticing the distinction between what's going on in my head and what the other person's saying, let's say. That can be such a huge shift uh, when someone kind of becomes aware of that. I think that I, I say this often. I say this uh, phrase of you're not the you are not the voice in your head um, as like this because that was a, a thing that someone in a book had said that like just kind of blew my mind and like uh, got me to the point where I'm at now where it's like realizing that those thoughts are part of me if however you want to conceptualize me and I. Uh, but right. they are not me and they okay. are kind of an object that can be watched and observed. And when you start to realize that it shakes up so much of what we are attached to in our own personality and our own reactions and emotional reactions. We see a lot and we talk about that a lot on this show of like people that kind of just say, I am the way that I am or like, this is just me and don't want to change because they don't want to lose that sense of, of self that they have. Um, and I think that's interesting because that seems to be an onboarding point for 
a lot of people uh, into mindfulness and they don't have to like, and I think to your point, like it doesn't have to mean you're sitting on a mat for three hours a day meditating mm. or ever. Right. Uh, right. It's helpful uh, to at least yes. do some kind of meditation practice, but there are, are things that you can learn from and apply from mindfulness that are applicable in day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, and I think often that we, most of us have some kind of self, many of us have some kind of self-soothing practice, mm-hmm. whether it's something formal like meditation or yoga, or whether it's, you know, naturally stopping and looking out the window or singing or listening to music or, you know, doing some intense exercise. Uh, and we can be very good at getting ourselves relaxed when we're focused on, when that's our goal, when, when we're doing that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 making space for that and making time for it. And I think that's what meditation teaches you is that, you know, there's nothing else to do right now. You're creating mm-hmm. 10, even 10 minutes, you're creating 10 minutes and you're saying there is nothing else I have to do right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get to just do this. Uh, and right. it's crazy how difficult that is when you first start doing that because we're so mm-hmm. used to just jumping from thing to thing to thing. But to your point, like everyone has something that's i know a lot of you know i'm from rural pennsylvania so a lot of people that's like fishing or hunting they get kind of that meditative state without realizing that's what they're doing just from like sitting in the woods you know right drinking a hot drink is another example Mm -hmm. people don't realize because it's hot you have to do it slowly smoking a cigarette which i actually don't do but i think that is actually a source of relaxation not because of the nicotine but because of you know, going outside the office or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I used to be a smoker. I used to work in mm-hmm. restaurants and that was, you know, you're stressed in the restaurant and you get this opportunity to go out and just like slow down and smoke a cigarette. And mm-hmm. unfortunately in restaurants, mm-hmm. it's like, that's the only opportunity you get to take a break. Like if you were like, I'm going to go stand outside for five minutes, they wouldn't let you do that. <laughs> but if you're like, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette, they're okay with that for some reason. Right, which is something we really should change. In the <laughs> Absolutely. People should have, have a, yeah, would have a five minute whatever break. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> um, I'm sure that you work with all kinds of different people. One of the things that we had talked about prior to the show was talking about relationships because you work with mm-hmm. um, people that are having turmoil and conflict in their relationship. And, and part of that is how mindfulness applies to that, but I'm sure there's other aspects to it as well. So what's... Right. I'm kind of curious, like, what are some of the, like, common, um, are there common strains on relationships that people come to that there's kind of like this breaking point where one or the other in a couple decides that it's time to see a therapist? And is it kind of too late at that point? Is it salvageable? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't believe in too late. I think too late (laughs) is a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, And too late also kind of implies that the goal is always to stay together, which That's also is a great isn't point. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think people come to therapy for all kinds of reasons. And I do see couples sometimes, but I primarily, primarily see individuals. Okay. And individuals will come to therapy about their couple in two reasons. One, when they know that something is their responsibility and they're trying to work on it. And two, which is more frequent, when they really think it's the other person's responsibility, but they can't get that person to come to therapy. Uh, and either yeah. way, there's a lot. It, it's great to come to therapy with your couple, right, with your partner and work on things together. Or it's great to work on things together with with your partner. But if that's not possible for you or if it just doesn't seem right to you, there's a lot of work you can do on your own in therapy on your relationship. I actually first became really clear about the benefit of mindfulness 
in relationship conflict. Of course, in my own relationship, in my relationship with my husband, in relationship with my kids. And there were these aha moments of something like, you know, I can get all peaceful in my chair or on my cushions, but then I lose it in, in, that, in those moments. And at losing it might be yelling or it might be just getting really upset or it might be not being able to listen to my kid the way I want to, the way I know I should. But yeah. something, something is, uh, is, is triggering me in, in, in some way or another. And when you talked about taking those 10 minutes where we don't have to do anything else, what I think would revolutionize the world <laughs> is if we could, if we would want to learn as much as possible that we can do that also when we're with other people. That listening can be the thing, that we don't have to do anything else besides listening. And yeah. usually we don't feel that way. Usually we have something burning, especially in those intense moments where it feels like listening is not the right thing to do. Right. One, it feels like, you know, especially when someone's saying something that you don't agree with you're kind of just waiting for your turn to tell them that you don't agree with them in most circumstances, unless you're aware right. of that. And I find myself doing that uh, in relationships, yeah. in personal, in, in, in romantic relationships, but also in, in business relationships where, you know, or like a political conversation, like uh, where mm. someone's saying something and in my worldview, that is false, what they are saying. And I have, it, it takes a lot of, um, you know, control to, not just not say anything, but also not let my mind run and like try to form an argument before I actually hear them out. That's such right. an incredible thing to to have to develop, but it also yeah. makes you a much more effective communicator and, and it makes you more uh, a, a better person in your relationships. Yeah. You know, you're talking about political opinions where we get very charged, yeah. but it also happens in... You know, when someone says something and we just think, oh, if they only understood, then we could solve all this. But yeah. they can't hear, they, they're not there. I, I actually, I do workshops for health professionals, for mm. doctors and nurses and, para, you know, all different kinds of health professionals. And one of the workshops I lead is how to deal with an angry patient or family member. And one of the things we talk about is that when a person is angry, past, past a certain level of angry, they can no longer hear you. Yep. So even if you want to say, oh, what you ordered is right there, <laughs> they won't necessarily be able to even hear that until they're listened to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's an interesting thing about humans <laughs> that <laughs> we just like desperately need to be heard. And, and it's funny because as the listener, you kind of have that reaction of like, I want to be heard. This person's yelling at me or they're talking and I want my you know, I think that if they just heard, like you said, if they just heard what I have to say, then it would be solved or whatever. Um, and like to your point, most of the time, if they're angry or or full of emotion, they're not going to listen regardless of what, no matter how logical your, your point is, uh, it's not going to make a difference. Yeah. And just or, that or allowing them the space. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And just allowing them that mm -hmm. space to get whatever it is out and off their chest uh and then slowing it down and being able to have a conversation what is it um are there things that you were able to help people learn to 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 do that more effectively beyond just intellectually understanding it is there ways that people can practice that absolutely so one of the things there's this first of all just bringing mindful practice just the concept of bringing mindful practice to relationship conflict i think yeah. is huge 
that idea that I have to work on self-soothing when I'm talking to this person who's important to me, or you know, it could be someone close, close, close in my family, or it could be some someone that I'm working on something with. That self-soothing belongs there too. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a switch of how how important and useful that is. So once you do that, then you can think about what your own self-soothing your methods of self-soothing are and be able to practice that. So things that I teach are things that I use and I've seen other people use. But what I love the most is that it gives the per- it gives a kind of inspiration for someone to think of their own. But something I teach, for instance, is it's funny, it's looking up, which is looking up and around, right? From we get, you know, we're familiar with that idea from mindfulness that paying yeah. attention to here and now is connected to the senses. And vision is often one of the big ones where we can connect to here and now. And when we're anxious, and often during these conversations we're anxious, or when we're angry, or when we're involved in a heated exchange with someone, all our attention is focused right in there. And it's almost like we don't really remember where we are. We know where we are, but we're not focused on it. So just looking up and looking around, and when I do that, I just naturally breathe <laughs> yeah. and, and noticing that really, even if we're having a pretty nasty fight, right now, everything is still more or less okay. And if it's not a nasty fight, then even more so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to get it to get lost, to lose your perspective. So that's important to be able mm-hmm. to do those little things that, uh, to and to your point, everyone probably has slightly different things, but it's nice to give people examples of if they want to try that you know and i i like that the um the i always try to identify my little thing is try to identify like something like actually describe it in my mind um that's around me that's beside that i'm not that is not in my current field of vision so i like will look around and be like oh there's a television over there in the room like i didn't like just a fact you know because then it puts you into this state of just uh joseph goldstein has a little thing about uh judgment and he talks about after a judgment just saying the sky is blue oh, and it just kind of makes nice. those thoughts matter of fact it's like oh i'm angry the sky is blue it's like i don't have to necessarily mm-hmm. judge myself or try to like force that anger down it's just noticing oh i'm angry maybe i should be mindful of the way that i'm about to communicate because i have i'm heated you know maybe i need mm-hmm. to take a step away everyone knows i think that you know that's generally an acceptable thing to do if things get too heated is to take some time and and separate yourself physically from the situation if you can if it's possible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um but obviously there's also times where that's just not possible you know like mm-hmm. and you kind of have to develop those little practices whether it's breathing intensely listening those sorts mm-hmm. of things all can yeah. can help that yeah i actually have a a method that I kind of put together, partly from something that I was inspired by, by Stephen Levine, actually, but all, and called the soft belly method for staying calm during conflict. Yeah. So I, I, you've got the link there. So yes. You can put so that in the show people. notes below, there's a link to, to Margo's free ebook that's about this soft belly method. Do you want to give people kind of like a little uh, teaser of what that kind of looks yeah. like and what it is? Yeah. So the first two steps are really familiar to anyone who practices mindfulness. Uh, And one of them I already said, which is looking up, just Mm -hmm. broadening the screen of your attention so that it's not all zoomed in on what's bothering you, which is what we tend to do, right? 
And the second step is noticing the sensations of your breath, right? Familiar. And then the Will third step is- you say that last is, part again? It just cut out a little bit, the noticing the sure. breath. Sure. The, sec the second step is noticing the sensations of the breath, which is familiar to people that practice meditation. And the third step is the soft belly, which Stephen Levine, Stephen and Andrea Levine have. Do you know Stephen? Are you familiar with Stephen Levine? Um, I've, I've heard his name. And I think I've seen or heard some of the meditations that uh, he's done, yeah. maybe on Insight Timer, yeah. but not super familiar. He's but. got he's got some great, it's it's not current anymore. Yeah. It, it's still great. <laughs> um, he's got a book called uh, Healing into Life and Death or Healing into Living and Dying, something mm -hmm. like that. And it's got a bunch of different meditations that are about changing our approach to different kinds of things. So he's famous for working with people who are ill or people who are at the end of life, but he's broadened his, his uh, scope and his focus in this book to just talk about all kinds of things. And one thing he, he has this, you can find it online, one, one meditation he has is called the soft belly meditation, I guess, and it's a sitting meditation of about 20 minutes of, just doing that, softening the belly. And then any feelings we have, he talks about they're floating mm. in that softness. And if, you, if you're aware of this, like if you, if you pretend right now that you're angry at someone, you might notice that the muscles of your lower belly are tighter than they were a second ago. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be even angry. Any stress, yeah. we're, we're kind of on guard. And so he talks about loosening that and i was really inspired by that one day to bring that into relationships so i don't sit down and meditate for 20 minutes but just knowing that that's something i can do that is and it brings the mindfulness kind of right into the body which also helps with knowing feeling my separateness from whoever is there which uh, that can also help us to remember that that person's over there i'm over here it's one more aspect of everything's okay right now. Yeah, I imagine that's really hard, especially in intimate relationships too. And I mean, I've experienced this and, and my current partner and I put a lot of focus on, um, you know, being very much in love and together and, and partners, but also being individuals and working on our own healing work separately because mm -hmm. uh, we think it's valuable to, you know, continue to evolve as individuals that are partnered rather than totally become one entity because when you become one entity too much then it's hard to manage your own it's just i've experienced at least it just spiral it can spiral out of control really quickly mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're not careful um right. and you it's can't an interesting take idea sorry I'd oh go ahead you. oh no yeah it's an, it's an interesting idea being one entity like what does that even mean yeah yeah because i mean it's, it's objectively at least on a like individual human level not true <laughs> it's right. not but we act like that often in relationships where we kind of lose ourselves into that relationship mm -hmm. um and we have this like romanticized idea that that's the way things should be and have to be especially with marriage mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um and in some ways that might be a nice concept and might be helpful to conceptualize it but um when it comes to like our own mental health it's important to remember we are a separate brain that's separate from this other human brain uh, right. and it, they need different things. Right. When it comes to our own mental health and it's actually also more healthy for the relationship. It's healthier for the relationship when I can stay connected to myself and be aware of my own opinions. 
because you're aware of what you're bringing to the relationship right. and staying right. mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's ups and downs. It is challenging, but it's a practice, right? So just like mindfulness is challenging, meditation is challenging. Yeah. It's a practice. And so just like they say, there's no failure when you sit down on your cushion. Yeah. Maybe there's a little more failure with this. Like, you know, <laughs> if you launch out and grab the person by the neck, maybe you'll consider that a failure. Yeah. Or, you know, you may have goals that you consider yourself not having met when you try this, but to approach it with self-compassion and with the idea that it's a practice. Yeah, uh, we can be really hard on ourselves. And that's something that I see a lot uh, when introducing people to meditation, for example, but also just mindfulness in general or anything that is in that that space. And, and it's in that simply begin again concept of just that self-compassion, whether it's you're trying to build new habits, whether you're trying to do better in the way that you react to situations in your relationship, whether it's meditating and focusing on your breath um whatever those things are like it's it, that self-compassion and that's what meditation i think can teach is that self-compassion um but there's other ways you can learn that too for sure yeah what absolutely if there's someone that like which really doesn't want to sit down and meditate like they're like that's not for me ever it's not ever mm -hmm. going to be me <laughs> what are some things that um in your experience uh are helpful to to develop that mindfulness, um, maybe in a different uh, conceptualization or practice? Just in general, not in relationship necessarily. You're sure, you're yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I, I think what's lovely about mindfulness is that you really don't have to meditate in mm -hmm. order to uh, access it. So it's, mindfulness is basically paying attention to here and now through the senses. So just noticing what you experience your senses is that not meditation enough right yeah exactly well yeah. i think totally i i think yeah. people kind of take it to like well i don't want to go sit in a cave and meditate for three years and like i've you never done sit that. anywhere yeah <laughs> you don't have to sit anywhere yeah you don't you totally yeah. most of my mindfulness practice happens out and about in my day-to-day -day life being mm -hmm. mindful of my actions my emotions and my reactions mm -hmm. um and that's where and that practice the reason it's called a practice is because you're not a master of it the second you start it. And, but the more you do it, the more you practice it, the better you get at it. Right. And then yeah. you're still going to have days where you just kind of exactly. <laughs> totally yeah. are just, you know, not there. <laughs> right. Right. So, so looking up, like just going through the five senses, what mm -hmm. am I seeing right now? What am I hearing right now? What am I tasting and smelling right now? Even though usually we're not so aware of that, but just, because if we're not eating, then right. what am I tasting and smelling? But but focusing on that when it's harder to find than sight and hearing can actually hone that attention. Yeah. And then of course body sensations. Yep. Yeah, I like the temperature, like feeling what the temperature feels like on my arms or my skin mm -hmm. uh, can really bring me back to like the present. Because it can be changing because if there's wind or there's air conditioning or something, there's a like slight variation in it. And it's a, a very subtle sensation, but uh, it can be a little deep of a sensation too, where there's kind of a well of information there that you're just not paying attention to. Right. Right. There's so many modalities of therapy now that use mindfulness, but don't necessarily re require, oops, require or even recommend that someone meditate. So, for instance, somatic experiencing. I don't know if you're familiar I'm not, with that. I'm not, no. So there's two, at least two, wonderful 
uh, methods of therapy. One's called somatic experiencing and the other's called DBT, the dialectical behavioral therapy, um, that were started by Buddhist monks. Except no one knew these people were Buddhist monks for a long, for, for years. Yeah. So, and, and they're all about mindfulness. So yeah. what, can you explain a little bit what the somatic, uh, what is it? Somatic experiencing. So soma yeah. is the body. Sure. So it's about connecting in to the body. And when, when you were asking about, well, how can you do this without meditating? So this is a perfect example. Yeah. That both of these. Both of these um, approaches to therapy were created with a specific kind of problem in mind, but they're both, I think, really broad in, in their benefit. So SE, somatic experiencing, was created with trauma in mind and a way mm -hmm. that you can, and I'm not a trauma therapist, but trauma is all over the place. So you, once you're a therapist, you gain experience in trauma, unfortunately, because right. it's just everywhere. Um, and um, so the, 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 it used to be that the, recommendation with trauma is that you need to talk about it. You need to literally or figuratively go back to the scene of the crime. But what people have realized is that that can be re-traumatizing because what does trauma do? It takes away your control. Yeah. So if I'm telling someone, you must talk about this, even if I'm doing it kindly and gently, mm -hmm. it is taking away their control. So somatic experiencing goes to the body and says, let's just focus on your sensations. You can be thinking about whatever you want. So, but in terms of what we're talking about, somatic experiencing gives great tools. If I'm feeling overwhelmed by emotion, then let me notice the sensations of that emotion in my body rather than being in my head. Yeah. And then let me notice some other sensation that I'm having that's neutral or good. And if I need to, I can go back and forth between those. And that, that actually, I think, comes straight from Buddhism. I think that comes yeah, straight a lot from of ways, yeah. <laughs> this practice of Buddhism that I'm not remembering the name of right now. I think back. it's, um, but, yeah. you know, helpful that we've taken these ideas from Buddhism and kind of removed them from the tradition. I think some people have different opinions about that. Uh, but mm -hmm. for some people, they're never going to accept or relate to something that's labeled as buddhism or even labeled as mindfulness yeah. like and they hear those words mm -hmm. they shut off because it doesn't right. fit into whatever their like worldview is which is fine really uh we have to just accept that is what it is but they can still benefit from and if you really are in it in teaching and sharing these ideas because you care about helping people relieve their suffering then there should be no problem with conceptualizing in new ways communicating in new ways that should be a great tool for sharing it with people that otherwise would be shut off to it absolutely i totally agree yeah sometimes people feel that they don't want to be involved with the religion or they feel they have already have a religion and yeah and the tools are universal buddhism i my approach to buddhism is that it's an incredible philosophy that's mm -hmm. how i engage with buddhism I'm, I'm less interested in the religious aspects also yeah same i mean yeah. i think it's kind of weird because i read a lot of the like poly canon like the texts as, as close as you can get from uh, to the, what the actual buddha taught obviously it was all spoken word and, and carried down some hundred years at that point still um before it Did was you say you read it you read it in poly is that what you just said i read the translations of the, oh, okay. the poly canon I wish that yeah. I could. <laughs> um, but for people that don't know, that that's like 
there's a couple different writings around that time um, that are kind of the closest to source material that you can get. Um, but the Buddha taught uh, in he never wrote anything down, at least nothing that survived. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting because even that you you get these things in that that were tools clearly if you look at it uh, like from an outside view clearly they were tools to help them remember because they were kind of like memorization tools of like repeating things and making it more poetic and and he may or may not have taught that way uh but it definitely was it it very well could have been added just as a way to remember these concepts um but within doing that and within the institution of that knowledge then they've added all of these traditions and all of this kind of religious layers on top of that if you look at the actual quotes of the buddha there's like nothing there's very few religious concepts it's almost Mm -hmm. anti-religious in a lot of ways um so yeah i mean it's it's really a philosophy it doesn't have to be contradictory to someone's religion or lack of religion at all Mm -hmm. exactly well said so we, we 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 talked about conflict and we were talking about conflict in relationships something that i did not plan on talking to you about but i accidentally stumbled upon an article that you had written in like 2013 uh about politics what it's called politicians in pain we were talking about suffering and and recognizing the the personhood the human nature of politicians that i think sometimes we forget um and i'd be i'd love to hear kind of now you know seven years later uh what your thoughts um and like perspective is is on that subject well it's a very uh intense time to be talking about politics both in my country i'm in israel and in your country there's stuff going on yep uh so you know i'm almost like oh no he found an article about (laughs) politics i don't want to go there (laughs) but uh really i think and i i don't i don't remember exactly what i said in this article i'll have to go look at it after after we speak you're going to go uh, remove that from your website now. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know, I, I, I trust myself from seven years ago. Uh, and, you know, we also, if, I, if, if there's something that I don't like, then we make mistakes, right? Yeah. But um, right now, I think it's hard in my country and in your country and perhaps maybe in other places as well to not have a strong opinion about politics because it is so painfully polarized. Yeah. And what, what politics often leads us to do is to completely forget the humanity of maybe completely as strong, but maybe not, to forget the humanity of people that don't agree with us. Yeah. At and least there's just, moments of it. Yeah. I think we've all experienced that where we get heated in in because if it, it feels it feels like it's coming from a place and this it, this is where politics and activism kind of blend together but it feels like you're defending somebody you're 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 doing it out of a place of uh compassion and love for someone that's um in quote unquote your corner which you might not even think of it mm-hmm. that way like it's i mm-hmm. find people often say their side and they're often pointing the finger like those people are on their side they without realizing they've just identified themselves as a side mm-hmm. and that you know mm-hmm. by by putting other people in boxes you're saying i'm not in that same box and they are separate from me and they are right. they are the other and that's right. so not in line with you know real radical compassion absolutely yeah Humanity 
sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to let you go. <laughs> humanity, uh, I think humanity should be the foundation. And there's so many things that make us forget that, first of all, we're all human beings. There's a great book. Do you know the book Sapiens? Um, yeah, I have that. Noah, on my. I haven't read it, but... That's yeah. a great book. So Noah Harari talks yeah. about... Um, how everything is constructed reality. He, he's also a, a meditator, and I don't know if he identifies as a Buddhist or not, but it affected, it's affected him, I believe. Um, so everything is constructed reality, which means that, it's, can you explain that? It's <laughs> a hard one to explain. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, we, we are very much subjectively experiencing ob an objective reality. You know, we, everything is coming through our sensations, you know, like, you cannot ever, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to conceptualize and can kind of freak people out sometimes if they're not already kind of introduced to these ideas of like, you know, you're having all these sensations hit your body and your brain is not only deciding which ones of those sensations to notice, because there's way too much for us to really like realistically pay attention to at any given time, not to mention the different affects the the you know our perspective literal like place and time it has on our version and our perspective of that experience and then you add all of our ideals and conceptions and abstract abstractions on those sensations to give them meaning and tell me that this is good or this is bad or this is pleasant this is unpleasant this is right this is wrong this is good this is evil all of those things are are concepts that we're more or less in i mean in a very real way creating in our minds mm -hmm. exactly, and being programmed right. and then, by it's kind of this circular loop because you're being programmed mm -hmm. by those experiences by the opinions and thoughts of others that you're consuming and it's this it it's creating this perception of reality that is not literal reality it's it's maybe based on reality but and there's things that we can do that help us uh test and 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 kind of try to come up with, well, what is this shared objective reality that we can get mm -hmm. past all of our uh, human perspective issues? Right. I, I don't know if we can really access what shared objective reality is, because I think we also have cultural agreements, like yeah. money, for instance. Harari goes into this whole thing about money, about what a, what a constructive reality oh, that is. And it's, it's a good thing. It's less, yeah. you know, you can create so many things because you can get resources to do that. Well, and what we call reality is is all of the things that we agree on as at least most of us agree on as a shared concept. And I think right now, especially people are really starting to realize like, well, money is really just literally a made up thing that we all agree that has value. Because mm -hmm. at least in the United States, our government's just printing trillions of dollars. And we're like, well, how can they do that? Well, it's because it's not real. <laughs> we... Uh, it's it's something that we've decided is worth something and it's an exchange of value, whatever. It's a useful construct, I think, mm -hmm. but it is a construct. Right. So back to conflict. Yes. When you think of, first of all, about relationship conflict, when you think of all that going on in our minds, when the other person just said, I don't like spaghetti. you know, How dare they? <laughs> right or oh gosh spaghetti again right I, I i i use this example with clients sometimes mm -hmm. um someone walks into the kitchen and says oh spaghetti again you know so what i do with that in my mind completely 
or I keep using that word completely, largely determines how I'm going to respond to it in my feelings and then how I'm going to behave. So if I say, oh, they're tired, or if I say, I love spaghetti, that I'll probably react a different way, both inside and in my behavior, than if I say, they're nasty, or I'm a horrible cook, or what a horrible person, or, you know, and all of these are normal reactions to have. You know, we can't control our thoughts often. You know, we can work on influencing our thoughts, but to try to control our thoughts can make us kind of crazy um, in the moment, you know? So it's not, I th you had an example before, or when I'm angry, you know, mm -hmm. to, to say the sky is blue, right? I like that because it's saying, yeah, I am angry and the sky is blue. It's okay that I'm angry, but yeah. now what? So to notice our reactions and to notice that my reaction is my imagination. Even if it's aligned, like if you tell me you hate spaghetti, <laughs> yeah, and I have a re a, an interpretation in my mind that like, it, I could be right. Let's say I say he's tired, or let's say I, I think he thinks I'm a terrible cook, all right? I could be kind of in line with what's going on with you, but I don't know that. The only thing I yeah. know is what you said. So it's imaginary. Yeah. And then we respond from this imaginary place. We respond so intensely from this imaginary place. Yeah, I think that happens such in such a huge way. Obviously, like it does. I think we can very easily see how that's true on a in our personal relationships, but how we relate to society is at large. Which it, right now yes. it's it's becoming very aware of how easy it is to get like very very upset over something that you have no control over. First of mm -hmm. all. And which makes you more angry because you're like this thing. I feel like this is wrong, this thing mm -hmm. that is happening. And I don't know how I can influence it. I feel like I have no control. And in mm -hmm. some countries, that's worse than others. Like I had someone on yes. the podcast that was raised in communist Romania. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, they had like it was nothing there. Like the, whatever the dictator said, like that was it. There was, they weren't allowed to practice yoga. They weren't allowed to practice any religion, not even Christianity. Like there were people mm -hmm. were just killed for that. Right. which is horrible and that's traumatic obviously yes. yes uh and we have all kinds of different layers of that of things that we can you know kind of agree most of us can agree like this is a unpleasant thing we don't we, we would love it ideally if less of this thing existed in the world because everyone yes. would it would have a less difficult time not suffering if this thing or that thing did not exist in the world mm -hmm. And it causes a lot of anger. And I think most of the anger, my observation in the people around me, the people that are involved in activism, uh, is not necessarily that the thing exists. The anger comes from that I can't do anything about that. I can't force mm -hmm. someone to stop hurting other people. Right. And that's right. it's a difficult emotion to deal with when we start yes. to realize that. Yes. Yeah, I think that's pretty profound what you're saying and that anger and guilt are two uh, very common reactions to lack of control and just noticing it, it's important to notice what we can influence and what we can't and if, we're, if all our attention is on what we can't influence then that's going to be very stressful for us and we're going to be less powerful in the world yeah but there's yeah yeah, there's there's very there's a I, I wish I could remember her name right now. She was on another podcast that I listened to. She was a sexual assault um, survivor, 
Mm-hmm. And in her state, there was like a statute of limitations and it, it was very short. It was like a year. It was incredibly mm-hmm. short. And she eventually wanted to report it and yeah. couldn't. And they were just like, yeah, we believe you that this happened. Like you have proof that this happened, but we just can't do anything about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, it was in one of the North England states, maybe Maine. I don't I don't know exactly the details. I forget. But um, what was incredible was she instead of allowing that to defeat her uh, or allowing herself to she even in her interview talked about she didn't even allow herself to get angry like she you know felt those emotions and she was going to therapy and dealing with all of that but on a kind of bigger level it was like there's something systematically wrong here and Mm -hmm. how how can I figure out a way to do something about that so she learned she's like a engineer or something but she learned how politics works she learned how not just politics but how law works in her state who are the decision makers because most laws there's one or two people that are actually making that decision on that law Uh she learned how do you actually get in a room with them and not only get in a room with them how do you get them to listen to you in a concrete way and she's went across the country now i think her organization is called rise um and they've passed these improved um sexual assault uh laws in a bunch of states and they're trying to do it in they actually might have gotten it passed already in the in the in the federal government here in the united states but her mm-hmm. story and i'll link that in the show notes somewhere because it's it's a very powerful um interview and, and example of looking at okay well what do i have control over and the with all the things that might be wrong in modern governments like most modern governments that we do have a little bit more if we if you really 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 care about something and it kind of puts that to the test like how much do you actually care about this injustice Mm -hmm. it is especially if it's a problem with the law criminal justice Mm -hmm. there are ways Mm -hmm. that those things can be changed Mm -hmm. it's not easy at all it takes a lot of not just effort but calm methodical Mm -hmm. effort uh Mm -hmm. and figuring out who are those key players, how do you uh, influence them, uh, which is incredible to use that stuff for good because so many people are using that stuff for their own greed also. Right. You know, they say, yeah. how can I influence this law or this election so that I can my company can make more money? So to be able to do that for something that you care about that you're not necessarily getting paid for is an incredible story uh, and incredibly inspiring. Yeah, that's amazing. There's a word in Hebrew called tikkun, which means kind of repairing the world. Mm. And uh, so she took her own, she has taken this woman whose name we're not remembering right now. I know, I wish taken I did. her own, that's okay, her own pain and created from that a tikkun, which is oh, amazing. Yeah. I wanna, as a, as a therapist, I wanna tweak something that you said. Oh, yeah. Because you said she didn't allow herself to get angry. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about that. I don't know her. But I'm, I'm talking, you know, so I can't speak yes. about whether she allowed herself. But I don't think we need to not allow ourselves to get angry. I think we can and sometimes even must. Well, we certainly must, in my opinion, allow ourselves to feel our feelings. Yeah. But it, it, maybe you meant how she was behaving more than what um, she was feeling. Yeah, I actually do think in her interview, she kind of, and this is something that, you know, it kind of came across as if she was suppressing at least originally was suppressing that in order to be able to take more effective action. Okay. Which that is, worked for her. Yeah, in that circumstance. And, and mm-hmm. hopefully that's worked as she's been able to deal with that personally. But I agree. You know, I think that, um, you know, I've suffered 
you know, we talked a lot about anger, but I've suffered a lot from depression. And Mm -hmm. that's something that easily you can look at and say, like, I'm not going to allow, like, I'm going to learn to not feel that. (laughs) And it's like, that's not how it works. Um, You can try and it it will build. It's the same with honest. And it's interesting because it like society is like this big organism. We are we we are in a collection of cells and bacteria and neurons and all of this, and then society is this collection of ecosystems and economies and people and cultures, uh, and it very much operates like a massive organism. Uh, the 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 point I'm making here is yeah. that when we are shoving people and suppressing people and their ideas and their their thoughts and their emotions and their experiences when we're saying that experience is not valid and maybe we can you know ag- most of us can agree that the way that they're acting on that experience is something we don't want to be happening in our society but to just say like you're not allowed to talk anymore you, we're going to shut you off and we're doing that with more and more and more groups of people across the world not just in the United States but and I'm sure you experience similar things at least to a degree in Israel uh, it's what it's doing is it's it's similar to suppressing emotions that we don't like negative quote unquote negative emotions is and and, and this might be a concept that doesn't resonate with people that are not familiar with like healing work and 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 have not kind of learn to deal with emotions in that way where they think like, yeah, I should just suppress my emotions (laughs) and we should suppress people that we don't agree with. Uh, But it's just something interesting when you were saying that I was like, Oh, we do that on a society level and it causes this like tension and this underlying and it will boil up somewhere. It's looks for a way to, to, to get to the surface. And that happens at our like personal emotional levels too. Right. Yeah. I think it was Maya Angelou that has a quote that says that she, it, was, I, it, took, it was difficult for me to take in when I first heard it. I, she says something like, uh, and I'm misquoting for sure, that I need to know that I'm capable of the, what the very best person in the world is capable of and also the very worst person in the world. And I thought of that when you were speaking. It's like, it's all part of a normal range of human experience. And if we try to block part of it off, it ends up injuring the whole organism. Yeah. Now, we don't want to necessarily encourage, it's all, you know, the difference between speech and then there's hate speech and then mm-hmm. there's behavior, right? So those are obviously different kinds of things in terms of what we're giving uh, attention and, and, and airtime to in our minds and, out, and in the world. But, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, we need to find some space even for, this is probably controversial, even for hate speech, not on a public level, not somewhere where it could incite other people, but in some space, whether it's a closed therapy, like the, like really like the people that I know that, you know, have, have kind of gone really far in that direction in like a far right in the U S direction, um, mm-hmm. which obviously is a, but they're people. And it's like, there's yep. some reason they think that. And if you just say you can't talk like that, then they're just going to do it more. Like you right. need somewhere, someone needs to be able to listen to them and figure out what is the actual motivation behind or misinterpreted information behind that and be able right. to talk to them in a calm and collected way so that, and not just be like, well, you're deplorable, you're evil. Yeah, absolutely. It comes from pain. Most of the things we do that cause pain 
come from our own pain or yeah. fear. Hurt people hurt people. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I could talk about this stuff forever, but I think that yes. the listeners are probably uh, ready to go on with their days at this point. Uh, hopefully that's been an impactful conversation and useful. I think some of the key tools and techniques that we talked about here were the idea of applying mindfulness in conflict in relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a Facebook group that is, mm-hmm. what is it? What's the name of it? It's called Calm During Conflict. It has a subtitle too, but if you look at Calm During Conflict, you'll find it. Yeah, I think that's a great place for people that want to dive into that subject a little more to mm-hmm. uh, visit. I think that's uh, a powerful and important uh, work that you're doing and information that you're sharing with people. So thank you so much for doing that. Is there anything final that you'd like to leave the audience with um, and also where they can find more besides the Facebook group? Okay. So uh, uh, I, I'm not remembering my, my <laughs> I'm not remembering my, uh, my website right now, but uh, I'm on Facebook, Margot Hellman, MSW, and also Margot Hellman and the Calm During Conflict. And I think this whole, the whole issue of uh, mindful listening in conflict is connected to an even larger passion that I have, which is that listening is this incredible resource that if we all got enough listening, the world would be a different place. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you so much. Uh, Maybe we'll have to do this again sometime so we can talk a little bit more. And um, yeah, have a great rest of your day. You too. You too. Take care. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. Thanks.